Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, PulpCon's Rusty Hevelin talks with guest of honor Philip Class. Mr. Class wrote science fiction under the name of William Ten. The talk was recorded on August 6, 2006, at PulpCon 35 in Dayton, Ohio. Jack Colors speaks first. I want to introduce uh, our guest of honor and, and Rusty Evelyn, who's going to come up and uh, start the ball rolling. Uh, real, real quickly, I want to tell you that uh, when it came time to pick Mr. Class up at uh, Mr. Mr. Class up at the airport, I asked my wife to go along with me because, as far as small talk and conversationalism goes, I'm not very good. So I figured that if Sal came along, you know, we wouldn't have any of those pregnant pauses. Five minutes after meeting Mr. Class, I realized that's not a problem. <laughs> so I'd like to introduce uh, Rusty, if you can come on up, and I'd like to introduce uh, Joe Class, also known as William Ten. He's going to speak to us for a while, and I'm sure you're going to find it very, very interesting. As, as um, Jack said, uh, trying to keep conversation going with Phil Class, no problem. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask him one open-ended question, and then I'm not going to interrupt him unless he slows down. Uh, that's not a very good moderator uh, interviewer, but I think it'll work. We'll find out. Uh, Phil? It's wonderful to have you here, and I think people have really enjoyed you today, yesterday. Uh, I'd like to just ask you if you will uh, talk about uh, some of your early experiences in uh, the pulp business and sort of emphasize the, the people that you met and your reaction to them and the early feelings that you had about your, uh, your stories. Okay. I will do the best I can, despite the fact that you and Jack seem to think I'm a talkative type. As everyone who's experienced me here knows, I'm a strong, silent type. <laughs> uh, so you're going to hear a lot of strong silence today. Now, uh, I ask your indulgence in several different ways, because I have a talk prepared which fits very well into Rusty's question, but it may not be what most of you expected to hear. If you came expecting to hear a ringing manifesto about something or other, you have to go back to when I was 17 years old, and I believe the world could be made better. Uh, I'm going to say things and tell you things that I've already told several of you individually, so I ask you to be patient. Basically, it's material for my autobiography, which I've been working on for some time. I've picked out some of the more colorful bits. Before I go on, there is an electronic device pointed at me. I have never used a microphone in my life. Uh, when I was at sea, the captain used to post me in the bow of the ship, 
and he said, when we get within a mile of shore, I want you to have a taxi waiting for me. And we usually had five or six taxis waiting for him. If there's anybody who can hear me back there, raise your hand from time to time, and I will lower my voice. Um, now, as I said, I thought this over. I had all kinds of things prepared. I've been working on this talk for some time. I didn't know what you people were like. I didn't know what the popcorn would be like. I've had a very positive feeling about it since I've been here uh, the last couple of days. I've been to many science fiction conventions and many other conventions. And uh, I don't mean to fly to you, but honest to God, Russ can tell you I've said the same thing pretty much. This is the first reasonably mature bunch of people I've come across in any convention. <laughs> and I don't know if it's because you buy and sell things that puts the iron in somebody's soul. I don't know if that's it, or there's many of you collectors. But in any event, I'm pleased to be here. I'm going to talk about my experiences of writing. Not how or why or what and all that. I wanted to be a writer since I was a very small boy. Uh, why? And, well, for example, when I taught writing classes at Penn State, one of my most effective classes had to do with, with by teaching students how to write memoirs. And my advice to them was always very simple. Write about an experience in your life which is very important to you but you still do not fully understand. Evoke that moment, that event, and then for God's sake, lie a little bit. <laughs> and the students got very shocked. A memoir? I would say, yeah, a memoir, I lie a little bit. I lied from an early age. And um, then when they found out that people were paid for doing that sort of thing, so I decided to write fiction. I cried writing for a long time. I wrote all kinds of things before I went in the army. I came very close to selling the New Yorker. Harold Ross liked one of my pieces very much. He was a fabled editor of the New Yorker. And he sent me a note telling me to come up to the New Yorker office. He had things to say to me. And my God, what a moment that was. The New Yorker. I saw there was going to be another... S.J. Perelman, and uh, I put on my one blue suit, a blue serge suit, and I went up to the New Yorker, and I said very proudly, Mr. Ross wants to see me. And I was told to sit down, and after a while, Howard Ross came out, and he said, did you write this? And I said, yes. I won't tell you what it was. It was something unbelievably adolescent, what can I say? And he said, well, we can't buy this, but one day, if we're lucky, we'll buy something from you. And he handed me back my manuscript. That's as far as I went. And I had many incidents like that, and eventually there was World War II, and I went into the Army, and I spent three and a half years there, which I hated, but I was fighting when I regarded it as international fascism, and I loved doing that. I came out of the Army in 1945, 
and my father had died while I was in service. My brother was in the merchant marine and we didn't know where, and uh, I was the sole support of my mother and sister, and who were not doing well. My father left no insurance. So I got a job at Red Bank, Watson Lab, writing radar and radio manuals as a technical editor and writer. And it was a very good job. Only problem with it, I lived in Yea, Brooklyn. That was in Red Bank, New Jersey. And uh, it was two and three quarters hours of commute each way. I used to figure that if I came home and ate supper and didn't spend too much time in the bathroom, I could get almost eight hours of sleep. Uh, I began writing on the train, and I would type it some of it evenings, the rest of it weekends. And I wrote every story, every kind of story I could think of. In fact, it's a good place to to pause for a moment and tell you that by that time I knew a lot about the pulp magazines. Not professionally, but I had read them as a boy, I had read them as a teenager. And as I said to somebody here a couple of days ago, uh, I read every kind of pub magazine, but one category did me serious damage. Something called spicy detective stories. Spicy hockey stories. I looked for that adjective everywhere I could. I felt somewhere I would find out what it was all about. I never did. Uh, but I knew a lot about Home Magazine, and I had read a lot of popular literature. I was always crazy about Tarzan. I didn't like any of the other boroughs. I didn't like the John Carter story. And um, I read every, I wrote for every one of those magazines. And every story I wrote, Western, Detective, Love Story, what have you, I sent over the different pen name because I thought all writers use pen name. And one day, a story came back from John W. Campbell with a check, a check came back, rather for $97.50, he bought it. It was a science fiction story written under the pen name of William Penn. So from that time on, thank you. You're welcome. I used William Penn, figuring first it brought me luck, and secondly, as one editor said to me, when I tried to give him a story under my own name, he said, who the hell is this full class? <laughs> he said, William Penn is a writer, I know of. So I used William, there are other When I am always asked, as I am, at some talk like this, why I use pen names, I say, do you want the five minute answer, which is really a filthy lie, <laughs> or do you want the other answer which takes a half hour and I burst into tears at the end? <laughs> well, I just told you the one which is a lie, because that's only part of the truth. So I had sold my first story, and I looked up the one writer I had ever met. You may have heard of him. He's an obscure fellow by the name. Ted Sturgeon, Theodore Sturgeon. I had met him before the war, and uh, thank you. I had not told him I wanted to be a writer, but Ted had suspected it, and I'd given him some plot ideas, and um, he wrote a letter about that time to Astounding, so I looked him up, and I told him I told the story, and he was astonished 
that he's, he had been visiting John Campbell the sounding for over a month and he said if you let me know once I could have asked him how the story was doing and I said no I didn't want that <clears throat> I didn't want any help I wanted to find out if I could tell write and tell the story and Campbell said you poor son of a you're going to be a bad man poor man all your life that is no way to behave but uh, I did it he became my agent my very first agent and he was also the agent for A. Bertrand Chandler Judith Merrill Damon Knight Jim Blish all of whom were scrabbling nobodies and um, he was the best agent I ever had but Ted asked me what I was now writing and I told him I didn't know I had nothing in mind and he said why not and I said well I have a job to do Red Bank New Jersey and I told him all about it I said I have a family to support and uh, I just can't afford to be concentrating on writing all the time and he said you mean to say you are going to hold down a job after you sold the story and you are a professional and I said, well, I don't feel like a professional, but that's what I mean to say. And he said, come with me. And he took me out into the street. He lived on 8th Avenue then, 151 8th Avenue. We walked down there, and he stopped at a candy store. I told some people, I apologize for the repetition. He they were called candy stores then. They were newsstands where you would buy candy. They also saw magazines, news, and all that. And outside the candy store, there was a huge wooden rack that was filled with pulp magazines. Beautifully colored, garishly colored, multitudes and multitudes of pulp magazines. Western magazine, spicy western, which I remembered. Ranch romances, love stories of the old west. Detective, dime detective. Black Mass, popular detective, famous detective, westerns, and so forth, and it, love stories too, where respectable writers I knew didn't go, or so Sturgeon told me. And he said, look at them, count them. And I started counting, 50, 60, 75, 85, 90, and he said, and you are going to work at a job after having sold stuff and becoming a professional. He said, look at those magazines. They all pay money. They pay low rates. Some of them only pay a cent a word. Some of them pay two cents a word. But he said, think of how great a living you can make writing for these magazines. And he said, you can write for all these different kinds of magazines. And I said, Ted, that's a wonderful thought. How many do you write for? And he said, well, I don't do much of this. I have trouble writing, and I don't get around much outside of science fiction. I found out to say the same thing years later. I was not to get around too much outside of science fiction. I began by writing more science fiction, and I was amazed at how long it took me to write a story now, now that I knew it was serious business, compared to how, comparatively speaking, little money I got, I knew in the job, if I put in, then you put in not five days a week, six days a week, at the end of the week, there would be payment. 
even if I had been dozing for part of the time. But if I dozed for part of the time while writing, there was no payment. <laughs> and uh, I began by writing science fiction, and Ted, who felt he was a bad agent, and all of us who were his clients kept telling him, no, no, you're a great agent. Ted took us off and turned us all over to the man he considered the best agent in New York. Some of you may have heard of him, Scott Meredith, the Scott Meredith Literary Agency, who, well, the man's dead now, so I shouldn't say it, don't speak ill of the dead, but Scott did more damage to more writers, I know, than any human being since Genghis Khan. Um, Scott had me write for the pulp magazines. And the first day, the first one I wrote for was something called something or other sports magazine. And they wanted a, a hockey story for me. And I explained to Scott, I knew nothing about hockey. Baseball, I was from Brooklyn, I was Brooklyn Dodgers and Football, yeah, prize fighting problem. But hockey, no, I was blank. And he said, is that all the problem you have? And I said, yes. And he said, you know, there's a puck. And I said, yes. He said, they try to get the puck into the goal. I said, yes. He said, with hockey sticks. I said, yes. He said, so, don't you see the story? And I said, no. And he said, can you think of a title? And I said, yeah, block that puck. And he said, okay, that's, he said, that's your first story. And he called up an editor and he said, I've got a young man here who's crazy about hockey and is about to write the best hockey story you ever saw. The title is, take a deep breath, block that puck. And over the telephone I could hear the voice, what a title, okay. And um, Scott said, now go home, work all night, and write a story whose title is block that puck. And I did, and I was paid $56 for it which was more than I thought I deserved, especially since I didn't know what I was writing about. Um, I've since learned about hockey. And um, it turned out that Scott owned, I use the word carefully, Scott Mara owned about 10 or 15 editors of pulp magazines. He had gotten them their jobs. They had been boys he knew back on his block in East New York. They were boys from the, his boyhood gang, and he taught each of them becoming editors. And he got them jobs as editors, which they liked a lot better than being Iceman. And uh, <laughs> Scott made only one condition, that they buy everything from him. And since they knew nothing about what they were doing, they were perfectly willing to do it. He owned these people, and um, he assembled a block of people who wrote for these people. And we frequently wrote stories. We filled up entire magazines in advance of publication. Scott, I remember attending meetings in Scott's office where he would say, I need a table of contents for this Western magazine. I don't forget the name of it. I don't remember the name of it. He said, who wants to do a novella? 
and so-and-so would do the novella, first tell the plot, yeah, okay, you do the novella, and work his way down to who's going to do the little fillers at the bottom of the story. And always they brought the editor, the only name I remember from that period, and if he's sitting in this audience, I'll step out of the way when he fires, is a man by the name of Bernard Katke, who was the editor of 4,000 pulp magazines for, a, I think it was Martin Goodman, who was also known as Martin Erisman. They had both names on it. And I did hundreds of sports stories for Bernard Kapke and his friends. I wrote westerns, I wrote detectives, and sometimes I used the pen name William Tennant and I thought the story was rather good. Sometimes I used the pen name Kenneth Putnam, which is an alternative title. But most of the time, you wrote the story and the editor decided it was by Jack London or Mark Twain or whoever, <laughs> and he put that on the table of content. And you made a living. And you worked like hell, but believe it or not, you made a very good living. Uh, it doesn't sound like much now, but there was a period in the early 40s when my rent for a five-room apartment was $25 a month. There was such a time, believe me. And I was making over four or five hundred dollars a week. Uh, I was bleary-eyed and I was using up typewriters, but I was doing that well. However, my basic interest was in science fiction. I had been, gotten the bug, I told it to some people, I was 11 or 12 years old, I read everything in those days, and one day I picked up a pulp magazine in a used furniture store or a used moving store where they had piles of them, they were selling for a nickel or two for a nickel, and I bought a magazine with a title that seemed interesting, amazing story, it was issue number one, volume number one, and that's worth anything, it was worth a lot, it is worth a lot, I didn't know that. and. I took, I read, I took the magazine with me. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was reading material. And I sat on the running board of a car outside the street we lived on, Deha Road in Brooklyn, and I read science fiction for the first time. I had loved fantasy up to that point. I loved that. I read every fantasy I could lay my hands on. And as I said to someone a little earlier today, after that, I no longer read fantasy, because I found the fantasy, as I put it to myself, you could believe it, the fantasy that was real. And uh, the only fantasy I still reread is, as far as I'm concerned, the only fantasy, which is Alice. You read and reread Alice, and it's different each time. But I had read science fiction. I was crazy about it. It seemed to me, and it still seems to me, I'm a lot older now and a lot more cynical, it seems to me it is the literature of our culture, the literature of our time. And I am dead set against most of the science fiction that's being written these days, which I regard as reactionary. I look on Tolkien, for example, as a superb stylist, I admire him, 
I admire his work in that respect, but I spit upon the concepts he regurgitates uh, because it's reactionary. As far as I'm concerned, it's not written after the scientific and industrial revolution. It is written for lords and ladies in a tower sewing on a fine seam and going out to lance up a couple of peasants. Uh, I am a creature of the scientific and technological revolution. This is the world I live in and I rejoice in it. And I think I live it really at the very beginning of it. And it is my belief firmly that the future will turn back to our time as the beginning of their much more complex culture. Those people who turn back to our time with that in mind may well not look like anybody here. They're more likely to be Chinese or Indian, from India that is, um, heaven help me, South Seas people, but they will have carried on and developed the culture, and they will be inhabiting the stars. In any event, I began writing science fiction, and I met, first of all, and spent a lot of time with the first editor I really got to know close up, John W. Campbell, who was my intellectual father. I had read him since boyhood. I not only read everything in his magazine, astounding science fiction, but I read all his editorials, and I still find myself repeating lines from his editorials, because the man had tremendous foresight. I met him. I wrote about this. I don't want to go into what I wrote about him, but he invited me up for lunch and we had one of the worst lunches of my time and my dream of my life was to have lunch with John W. Campbell. I found that disagreed with him in every respect about the world and culture and life. I found him a very conceited man. I also found him a very domineering man. He talked a lot as I don't. And uh, John Campbell, Sturgeon said of him, when you're talking to John Campbell, he said, after a while you become aware that he's expanding. He seems to fill the room you're sitting in. And it's very hard to find a place for yourself in that room because he just overwhelms the entire room. And he said, the only thing that's worse than that, this is Sturgeon, he said, is being in a room with John Campbell and Robert Heinlein at the same time. He said, there is no room for molecule that is not Campbell or Heinlein in that room. Campbell, um, well, uh, I'm trying to remember what I should tell you about Campbell. I'll tell you the ultimate thing about Campbell. This is, I told that to a few people. This is from my autobiography. Many of you know who John Campbell is, many of you know what astounding is. Not too many of you, except the people I've spoken to already today, know about John Campbell's funeral. He died, as mortal men do, and he had a funeral. But he had a funeral such as nobody else I've ever heard of. What do you, what do you think of when you hear that? You think of long lines of slaves carrying trays of emeralds on their way to the tombstone of poets and musicians playing on harp 
Let me tell you about John Campbell's funeral. One day, I was then teaching at Penn State, which is in State College, the very center of Pennsylvania. The news came over the radio that John Campbell had died, that somebody by the name of John Campbell had died. He, he was the editor of a science fiction magazine, something like that. And um, I sat both upright, and they went on. The funeral was to be, this was early in the morning while I was having breakfast, on my way to class. The funeral was to be at 1.30 that day. It was then about 7 o'clock. I couldn't drive there for various reasons I won't go into. So I told my wife to call the department. I had to cancel classes that day. And I began making connections. I had to make a fantastic number of connections. This train, that bus, that. Before I finally arrived, at Westfield, I think it was, where Campbell led with the second wife, Peg Campbell. And very dirty and grimy, I rang the doorbell of the house, and Peg Campbell opened the door, and she said, you're here for the funeral? And I said, yes. She said, exactly at 1.30, take a seat in the living room, that's where it will be conducted. And I said, in the living room, a funeral? And she said, in the living room, take a seat. I went in, and there was a room full of folding chairs. I mean full. And it was full of people sitting on the folding chairs. Names like, people like Asimov, Lester Del Rey, Elspeth DeCamp, John R. Pierce, J.J. Coupling, he was. And um, everybody from anywhere who had been able to get there on time, nobody from the West Coast, there were no rocket ships in those days. And a vast mass of writers who had worked for Campbell who had to come to Campbell's funeral. And they were asking each other, do you know what kind of cleric will officiate? Nobody knew. Um, where's the coffin? What coffin? And we sat on the folding chair until Pat Campbell came in and said, it is now 1.30, the funeral will begin. And she went to a table on which there was a small box, and she took the electrical wire and reached under it to a plug and plugged it in. Then she flipped the switch on the box, and a voice came out of the box saying, Good afternoon, everybody. If you are hearing this, you are gathered for my funeral. And Isaac Asimov, I can't repeat the first dozen obscenities in his line. Isaac Asimov, I shouldn't in this. Isaac Asimov said, the son of a bitch is conducting his own funeral. <laughs> and he was. And Asimov conducted his funeral for an hour and a half. He spoke of his achievements, he gave himself a very good eulogy, and um, he wished everyone well. He told us what he thought the future would be like, he told us to write about it, and he told us he said, never forget, keep it dramatic. And so this went on for about an hour and three quarters, or two and a quarter hours with all these people sitting and listening respectfully, every once in a while saying quietly to hear, God damn that man. <laughs> and at the end of that time, he said, so much for the funeral, now go out, 
and lead good lives, I wish you well, do important things. And then he mentioned a couple of people he felt would do especially important things. One of them, for what it's worth, was John Pierce, J.J. Coupling. He mentioned no other fiction writers, no fiction writers in there. That was John Campbell and his funeral. So, let me tell you about John Campbell and life, which I've told a few people. It's my favorite story about John Campbell. I found it more and more difficult to write for John Campbell. We used to argue about everything. And, uh, fun? I say that, he did. Yeah, and, uh, uh, I felt he had no knowledge of history or culture. He took so many things for granted. For example, that man is, human beings are by necessity. Um, they believe in marriage. The more advanced cultures, he would say casually, all believe in marriage between a man and a woman. And I would say to him, John, five centuries ago, the most advanced cultures were in the Near East and in China. And he'd say, well, they didn't survive as the most advanced cultures. He said, the most advanced cultures have to believe in what I say. And uh, he had very dim views of Africa and very dim views of the people who lived there. And it did me no good to point out that the major agricultural revolutions of our species had occurred in Africa. And the development of most of the major produce had occurred in Africa. He waved that aside. I found it very aggravating to argue with him. And I usually lost. And one day, when I had left him, I was writing mostly the Horace Gold of Galaxy. I was sitting in Horace's home office. He was in Agoraco, he couldn't leave his home. And the phone rang, and Horace picked it up. And the very familiar, resident, booming voice of John Campbell came out of the receiver and filled the room. You heard everything. And Campbell said, Horace, I am calling you because I've just heard a vicious rumor about me. And Horace said, I'm sorry to hear that. What is the rumor? And Campbell said, the rumor, Horace, that is going on about me is that I am dogmatic. I am not dogmatic. <laughs> and the wolves shook and the table fell. Um, and Horace said very meekly, John, nobody, no you could ever consider you dogmatic. Um, that was Campbell. Um, uh, one of the reasons I left Campbell, of course, many of you know about this, was we've gone over the deep end over Dianetics. And we quarreled bitterly over Dianetics. He kept begging me to write a good story about Dianetics. He said, it is the therapy of the future. I didn't like it, and I didn't like L. Ron Hubbard because of it. And when I met Hubbard, we did not get along. I found them, in some respects, very similar to Campbell. But I admired Hubbard for one thing above all, for his stories. I did not like the man, I did not like Dianetics, but this was, after all, the author of Fear, 
of um, slaves who sleep, of the ghoul, and above all, the most definitive science fantasy story of all time, as far as I was concerned, typewriter in the sky, which I felt was a statement, an investigation that any writer had to be mad about. Um, but uh, Dianetics spread very rapidly. A tremendous number of people, among them A. Van Vogt, as you probably know, yeah. became Dianetics fans. Jim Blitz wrote an impassioned defense of Dianetics in Planet Stories, something he disowned many times later and swore he'd never written it. They had forged his name. Um, but it spread all over the world. Um, I got to know Horace very well. Horace was an agoraphobe, as I said. Horace Gold of Galaxy. He could not leave his apartment. And then it was the time I would go to visit Horace, and the agoraphobia had gotten very bad. We had to sit in his bedroom, sometimes behind the dresser, so we could feel really enclosed. And sitting on the floor behind the dresser with the door locked, we would talk about parsecs and galaxies and time travel and all that. Uh, he was, um, well, I'll come back to this in a moment. One night in Horace's place, there was a party. His wife, Evelyn, saw that he had to have a social life, so every Friday night there was a poker game at Horace's house. Nickel and dime and 15 cent poker. And um, Fred Poe was there, Sheckley was there, I was there. Sheckley and I, who were almost professional poker players, we both learned how to play poker in the Army, uh, usually made a good living out of those games, even though there was only 5 down 15 cents. But a lot of other people showed up. John Cage, the composer, Daniel Stern, the writer and actor, and uh, many others like that. And at one of those evenings where the poker game later became a party, uh, we were all sitting around afterwards in the living room with uh, Asimov, Kornbluth, Fritz Leiber, Judy Merrill, Fred Poe, and a lot of the conversation went on with a lot of these people who were not science fiction writers partaking out of their specialty. John Cage, who's an avant-garde composer, trying to talk about what music might become a century from now. And suddenly, Horace stopped. And he looked across the room at Asimov, and he said, Ike, you should know that I am rejecting that latest novelette of yours. I bounced it and thoroughly. And Asimov was stung because people usually did not bounce anything by him. And he said, why are you bouncing? What's wrong with it? And Horace said, very simply, it's Merry Christmas. And he started in the kitchen. And I yelled at him, and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. Um, in any event, I mentioned his agoraphobia, which was severe. There was one man with whom Horace could leave the apartment. Only one man, as far as I know. And that was Fred Pohl. For some reason, he trusted Fred against the goblins that lay outside. But otherwise, 
He never left the apartment. Fed eventually inherited Galaxy when Horace gave up completely. I loved working with Horace. He was interested in social sciences. He wanted political satires, which I wanted to write, and nobody else would publish. The one time I wrote a story, my first political satire, which is Brooklyn Project. Some of you know. Horace gave it to me, scaled it across the desk to me, and he said, Phil, listen, no, 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 no. And he was still saying that when I backed out of the room. Uh, I finally took the planet stories. I have that in my book, I mentioned this. And Malcolm Reese, everybody else rejected it. The HUAC, the precursor to the McCarthy Committee, was running rich and wild in those days. And everybody said they couldn't take a chance on publishing the story because the story was a satire of the HUAC committee. And Malcolm Reese of Planet Stories looked at it. Planet Stories in those days had not published a single story that took place on Earth. They wanted the stories about the planets and they wanted the action stories. And Malcolm Reese read my story and he said, it doesn't fit our book in any way at all. But I figure this one is for God, and every editor is entitled to one story for God. And he bought it and paid me a lot of money for a short story. Ah. And, um, but Horace had read it, and Horace said, he'd not been publishing then, and he said, I'll buy anything of that sort you write. So it was a pleasure. Before I stopped, I just want to mention one thing about Horace. Uh, you're one of the very few groups of people ever to have heard of about the pension. Remember, I told you, Horace could not leave his apartment. When things got bad, he couldn't leave the bedroom. When things got very bad, he hid behind the shower curtain. Uh, he was a great editor nonetheless, but he was a real pathological agoraphobe. He hated anything that involved spaces. And this man, besides being a great editor, and he was a great editor, accomplished something, almost something unbelievable. Remember, he never left his apartment, except once in a long while, with Fred Polhaney holding his hand, he would go down, maybe up to the elevator shaft. And this man actually had a mistress. <laughs> he he developed the mistress and when Evelyn, his wife, found out about it, she said to him, Why, Horace? Why? And Horace said, Because I wanted to know everything that normal men know. I wanted to have everything that other men had. And Evelyn said, It was humiliating and unacceptable. But damn it, you had to admire a man who could do that. <laughs> and she did. The lady sitting in the first row, my wife Fruma, uh, and I had the experience of being invited to their home after Evelyn had left. Horace and his mistress Sandy being invited there for a bridge game. And it was the worst and most terrifying bridge game of our life. It was the worst marriage I've ever seen anywhere. 
they fought over the bridge hands, they insulted each other constantly, and they told both of us that how they had played, how he or she had played the last hand was the way he or she made love. That was what happened in bed. And they explained why in great detail. And Fulman and I kept staring at our hands and... Uh, in any event, um, uh, Horace's greatest line as far as I was concerned, he always felt I was being too literary. One day I told him an idea and he said, Phil, that's a wonderful idea. I'll buy that story definitely and I don't care how good it is. Um, he said, you can write it as well as you want to, I'll still buy it. And he did. Uh, all right. Uh, the lady who sits in the front row, her name is Fulma, and uh, I met her one night. I had been living with a woman for about a year who was the craziest female I had known in the village. And let me say that in the village, I was known as a collector of crazy females. <laughs> but this woman whose name was B was something special. And every once in a while, she would turn to me in the middle of a meal, in the middle of a kiss, in the middle of going to the bathroom and say, I just can't stand it anymore. And she would run out of the door and be gone for a week, always one week. And one week later, there'd be a bang on the door, and I'd open it, and B would come in and say, why didn't you come after me, darling? You know how much I love you. And I'd say, what happened between us? What went wrong? And she'd say, if you don't know, I can't tell you, but everything is all right now. In any event, I kept telling her that the day would come when she would leave me like this, and there'd be nobody to come back to. And one day, she walked out of me and I said, God damn it, I've had enough. I could never find out where she went, why she went, what happened. So I sent out word to all my friends that somebody was going to be back in my life in one week. And I needed a date for every day of the next week. Preferably somebody I could fall in love with. Somebody who I could have a meaningful relationship with. And all my friends came up with a girl for every night of the week. Somebody I had met before. Fulma, as she was as fond of saying, Fulma was Wednesday. And uh, <laughs> um, I met her on Wednesday night, and I left that evening and came back and met Bob Sheckley, who was then my closest friend. And I said, Bob, it may be hard to believe, but I think I met the only woman I should or could ever marry. And he said, does she have a friend? <laughs> and I said, yes. I called up Fuma and I said, Bob Shackley wants to meet a friend of yours, any friend. And Fuma said, I have one friend. And her name, despite the fact that Fuma's name was Fuma, Ziva. Her name was Ziva, and Bob met Ziva, and they fell in love, and they got married, and they got married one month after us, 
and I got divorced a year later. <laughs> Bob Sheckley, as some of you know, has been working his way through the women of the planet Earth. Um, but Fruma and I were married in 1957, and over the objections and the astonishment of everyone we knew, we've actually reached the point where we are eight months away from our golden wedding. Um, stand by because every once in a while we have a real argument and who knows what may happen. But we've made it for 49 and a half years. Um, in any event, uh, just before I met Fuma, or just about the time I met Fuma, uh, I had an idea for a story based on my feelings about time travel, which always excited me ever since I'd been a kid. I was very excited about the prospect of what our future would be like a hundred years from now, two hundred years from now. What could we be doing, what would we be doing, and I wanted to be part of it. And I felt trapped in an earlier stage of life, if only I could have been born a hundred years later. And I used to dream of time travel. Also, this had to do with the very first time travel story I'd read in science fiction. It almost drove me out of my mind. I, I, I didn't know of H.G. Wells in those days. I didn't know of the time machine. But I read a time travel story in a science fiction magazine, and I couldn't read anything for several days after that. The very concept overwhelmed me. And I had written a lot of time travel stories, and I loved the subject of the time travel, and I had suddenly reached a point where I didn't feel I would want to go into the future anymore. I didn't like the idea of time travel. I'll explain why possibly later. But I found it an ugly thought for various reasons. And I told Horace about this. And the type of the story I told them was Winthrop was stubborn. And Horace said, Phil, I want it. Write it as long as you like. I'll buy the story, and I'll give you almost any bonus rate you want. He said, when will you finish it? I said, a week, ten days, most. And then I spoke to Fuma of marriage, and it turned out she thought about it too. And we agreed we were going to get married. And I said to her, the only thing is, I'm going to get a very big chunk of money for Winston was stubborn, so we won't get married until I finish the story, and we'll use it to go on a honeymoon, we'll have the most spectacular honeymoon you ever saw. And she said, fine. She said, when will you finish it? I said, a week, ten days at most. And I went back to writing it. And the months went by. <laughs> and one day, I think it was close to the first anniversary of uh, my proposal. Fuma said to me, look, as far as I'm concerned, I'll let you off the hook. If that's what's holding you up. We don't have to get married, but I do want to read that story. <laughs> and I said, don't, it's very simple. She said, what's happening? I said, it turned out to be more complicated than I thought. And finally, I finished the damn thing. I took it to Horace, and 
we had a famous colloquy where he read it and he said Phil, the only thing I don't understand is what took you so long. It reads so smooth and easy. And I said, that's what took me so long. <laughs> um, and he bought it and it was published. Now, before I go on, something about Horace Gold, which you may have heard. Campbell never rewrote anything. He disliked a thought in the story and he fight you to the death over that thought. So when I wrote a story for him called Firewater about some very advanced aliens coming to Earth far superior to us, so far superior that they seemed to cancel the laws of cause and effect in what they did. Campbell bounced that story again and again and again and each time he bounced it he said I definitely want to use this story as a cover story for the magazine. It's great. But you missed the point. Rewrite it and give me the point. And I would say to him, what's the point? And he said, Phil, it's your story, you know. <laughs> and I would rewrite the story and send it to him and Campbell would bounce it. This went on five times. And finally I looked up Ted Surgeon, who was no longer my agent but was still my mentor, and told him about it. And Ted read the story and he said, I don't see what's wrong. And he went off and had a lunch with Campbell, a long lunch. And he came back, he said, it took a lot of digging, but I found out what the problem is. You have postulated aliens who are intellectually superior to humanity in every way. And Campbell takes that personally. Um, <laughs> he will not accept it. So I said, that can't be true of John Campbell of Astounding. So I called him. I mean, he had a long talk, actually that's around five or six hours, and over and over again, he said to me, do you dare tell me that you can visualize a creature that is really superior to you intellectually in every way? And I said, yes. And he said, I deny that and I feel you are lying. And you are lying in the story. And I said, John, can't you imagine? And he said, I cannot. It's out of the question. Ted Sturgeon told me, he said, if you only reflected on what happened when you played chess with John Campbell, which I had three games. Campbell found out I loved chess. I would play chess regularly. I had once beaten the New York State champion, a lucky game, but I had beaten him. And Campbell heard about that, and he said he wanted to play chess with me. And I begged off. I didn't want to. And Campbell insisted. So we sat down and we played chess. And I beat him very quickly in three successive games. And the surgeon said he never got over that. And he could not believe, as he put it to Ted, he said, Phil Class is a bright guy, but he's not that bright. <laughs> and um, I said to Ted, damn it all, does not the man understand that there are chess bums in Greenwich Village who hang around Washington Square and play for a quarter a game if they win? 
and they win quarter after quarter after quarter from fine players because all they do is play chess and study chess traps. And they can beat almost anybody. And they'll never be great players. And Ted said, no, he can't understand that. He's insulted by the very picture. So I wrote three lines which suggested that maybe, maybe, human beings had qualities that these aliens didn't have, and Campbell burbled and bought the story. <laughs> and um, that's the first part. So I turned to Fuma with a great check in my hands, one of the biggest I ever received from Campbell, and I said, now we can get married and we will go on the honeymoon of all time. And what happened? I got a phone call from Judy Merrill. This is another story, I don't have time to go into it all. Speaking of time, yeah. can we have a time check? We're five over. Give you another ten minutes. God bless you. I can only use two hours more, but I'll do the best I can. Um, Judy Merrill said, many of you don't know this story. Phil, you cannot go on a honeymoon, you cannot do anything like that. You have to come to Milford, Pennsylvania, where I now live. Fred Paul and I have decided to break up our marriage. By the way, I must pause and say, that marriage between Fred Paul and Judy Merrill was a marriage made in the deepest depths of hell. <laughs> <laughs> Never have two people both of whom are so interesting and nice, or Judy died since, contracted a relationship. They couldn't get along in any way. Where other people loved each other, they hated each other in every way imaginable. They were jealous of each other. They undercut each other. And I mean undercut. I mean, if Judy had ever said to me, or Fuma has ever said to me, one-tenth of the things that Judy would casually say to and about Fred in mixed company, I don't think I could survive the night. And they did it all the time. They cut each other to ribbons. And despite all that, something must have been going on because they did have a child. <laughs> and they decided to break up and they were having, not only they had not only divorced, but they were having a custody battle over the child because both of them wanted Annie. And Judy said over the phone, Phil, it is the custody battle of all time because it takes place in Pennsylvania. And she said, I don't know if you know this, it was, I don't know if it's still true by the way, but it was then true in Pennsylvania. She said, in every state in the union, when there is a custody battle, and the parties, the parents, try to block in each other's names so that they will get custody. The judge always has the option of taking custody away from both of them and giving and putting the child in the care of the state. But, she said, this is not true in Pennsylvania. There is no limit. The judge has to decide which of the two parents is still the most fitting parent and he has to award custody to one of the parents. She said, this means that anything goes in the way of presenting evidence. And she said, Fred has assembled a number of people who have incredible things about me, all kinds ranging from 
documentary evidence, the photos. She said, incredible stuff. I'm doing the opposite. She said, you must come to Milford and testify on my behalf. You are my closest friend. And this, Phil Class, this is Ragnarok. So I told this to Forma, and she said, well, we have to go. So we spent our honeymoon in Milford, Pennsylvania. I, in the lower depths of the courthouse, in the witness room, waiting to be called. Forma, in Judy Merrill's house. And this went on. And at that, just as at the funeral, almost everybody in science fiction was there on either Judy's side or Fred's side. And we used to meet because we all liked each other and talk about how the trial was going. And um, uh, I'll give you just one quick thing. I won't go into all the things, but just one quick thing. Jim Bliss was testifying for Fred and Judy claimed she had absolute evidentiary proof that Fred that Jim Blish was an active homosexual and chased four-year-old girls. Um, I won't go into what it was, but it was um, incredible. They not only attacked each other, they attacked each other's witnesses. <laughs> and the trial went on, the custody trial um, went on for about 11 days. Uh, what we vaguely knew what was going upstairs. We sat in the witness room talking about philosophy and science fiction and history. And at the end of 11 days, the judge having heard a hell of a lot of black, black stuff, um, decided that he was going to end this. And he announced that he would call both parents to the chambers. He would lock the door. And he said the door would not be open until they agreed on how custody was to be handled. And he did. And it was night, and it was day, and it was night, and it was day. And they unlocked the door. Um, and Judy and Fred agreed on a custody arrangement which any two morons would have agreed on in the first place. It was obvious. There was no problem. And um, we, we, we all witnesses were sent home, and Phil and I figured that we had had a wonderful honeymoon. And that was it. Um, uh, I, think, uh, I think we're going to have to say at this point, that was it. Okay, that was it. Um, <laughs> and the rest of it, you're reading my autobiography.
You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.